So just before I walked up here in the first service, Matt leans over and says, hey man, you know, you haven't been here in three weeks, so you're probably rusty. And uh, he said, so don't mess it up because the three of us who preached in your absence were awesome. <laughs> and I just kind of, they were awesome, right? I, and I thought, you know, that's, that's true. I mean, it's, it's wonderful for us to be able to go away three weeks and really and truly, honestly, to be able to go away for three weeks. And except for a couple of emails and maybe a few phone calls, that's it. Done. This place is so well run and it is awesome to leave it in the hands of guys like that. It really is. I mean, if you just work through who spoke while I was gone, just starting with Sam Kastensmith, if you've been around this church for a little while, and certainly if you know what's been going on at the school across the street, you know that Sam is a superstar in the making, that God has his hand of favor on Sam. He has done a great and undeniable work of leadership through Sam in that school. And aside from that, the guy is absolutely brilliant and a great teacher and preacher of God's word. And here's the deal. He's just going to get better. It's awesome. Then there's Carter. He was the next week while I was gone. Carter is like a Pied Piper, man. Carter blows his horn. We just all line up and follow him, even when that ends with my head being shaved like it was last November. I mean, that's bizarre. I told him, I said, no one has ever gotten me to do anything like this in my entire life, and no one ever will again. But really, but it was good that we followed him. It was good that we followed him. Look at the grace home. It's phenomenal. He's a great leader, a gifted guy, a humble man. And those are not things that are all found in young people with that kind of gifting. Then you've got Matt. He's not a superstar in the making. He is a superstar, period. That's it. I mean, he just is. And just so you guys know, that's not just recognized inside of the walls of, of this church and the halls of that school. That is recognized widely in this community. He is a very respected guy with a strong voice in what's happening in the kingdom in this community. And then, of course, you've got Ryan. I mean, you know, Ryan has every single Sunday. Ryan is a worship pastor. Like, I will have somebody come to me occasionally. They'll go, who's your uh, music guy? I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't have one of those. I don't have a music guy. I have a worship pastor. I have a guy who is not only credentialed and excellent in music and vocally and all of that other stuff. I've got a guy who's got an MDiv from Knox. I have a guy who is theologically sound. I'm a guy who writes all of these incredible papers on worship. I have a guy who in the last nine or ten years has taken this church from where we were to where we are. And I'm here to tell you, like, if you haven't been here in ten years and now you joined us this morning, you're going, where am I? Because we are different in our understanding of worship, in our value of worship, and in the way that we worship. Dramatically different. We're still moving, but that's largely the Lord's work through Ryan. It really is. And so you can just keep going down this list. Jim Staffy and all the people in our student ministries and all the people in our children's ministries and our support staff and so forth. And so anyway, it's a blessing for me to be able to leave and to go, yeah, you got it. We're good. Let me know if you need anything. But it's really a a greater statement about how God has blessed this church and this congregation. It's really a remarkable thing. And so, rusty or not, however, I'm back, and we're going to continue today with our study of that rather large part of Luke's gospel, 41% of his gospel, 10 of his 24 chapters that he has carefully and meticulously written and put together in such a way as to have a conversation with us about what it looks like or what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's essentially coming to us and saying, look, if Christ by his spirit has laid hold of your dead heart and made it alive, 
Do you hear that? If Christ by His Spirit and through the instrumentality of His Word and in community with His people now is at work shaping you and molding you and changing you and making you more and more and more into the image of Christ and less and less and less like you used to be, if to use the metaphors of Christ, Jesus Christ for His own glory has taken a bare tree, a bad tree with bad fruit, which is what we all once were, And He has and is transforming you into a good tree that organically produces good fruit because, hey, guess what? That's what good trees do, you know? They don't have to try to do it. It just, it happens. Orange trees produce oranges. That's what they do. If that's happened in your life, He's coming to us in these 10 chapters and saying, let me show you what some of that fruit looks like. Let me show you some of the things where He wants to mold and shape you. Let me show you what it looks like or what it means by God's grace, by His Spirit, in accordance with His Word and community with His people to follow the Lord. And as we return to that part of His gospel today, we come to chapter 18 and with it to the topic of prayer and to this incredibly important idea that you and I as followers of Jesus, okay, you ready? Are to persevere in prayer. That is to say, we are not to give up on it. We're not to quit on it. We're not to throw in the towel on it. And we're not to do that even when every reasonable interpretation of the facts of our lives is screaming to us that this God that we're crying out to is not listening. And that the deliverance, the justice that we so long for, that we so need, not just want, well, it's never really going to come. We are to persevere in prayer even then. And here's why. Because we are not like the widow in the first of the two parables that Jesus is going to teach us this morning. That's why. However, we're only not like the widow in the first of those two parables if we are, in fact, exactly like the tax collector in parable number two. So with that in mind, we pick up our study this morning in Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, and Jesus told them, meaning his disciples back then, but his disciples today here now also, Jesus told them and us a parable and to what end? Because Luke gives us the purpose of the parable to the effect that they and that we ought, keyword, always to pray and not to give up, not to quit, not to throw in the towel, or as he says it here, and I love this, not to lose heart. Have you ever lost heart? You kind of know it when you do, don't you? It's sort of like you have this great hope for something, and it's like a torch, man. I mean, it is just this blazing hope, and you cry out, and you long for it, and you look for it, and surely it's going to happen, and it doesn't, and the flame gets a little dimmer. But you're still hopeful, and now it's going to happen, and you cry out for it, and surely it's going to happen, and its flame gets a little dimmer, and you're down to a candle, and you're down to a smoldering wick, and then one day you realize... You have no hope at all. You've lost heart. Jesus says, well, then I've got a story for you. And Luke says, here's who it's for. He's telling us a parable to the effect that they and that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart, even when every reasonable interpretation of the facts of our lives tell us that we should. Hey, you know what? He's not listening. Beyond that, Your deliverance will never come. 
So here's the parable. Jesus said that in a certain city there was a judge, but what kind of judge? You've got to look at the characters and understand who they are to get the story. He was a judge that neither feared God nor respected man, which practically speaking means this is a guy who rules as a judge, okay, with no accountability whatsoever. There's no cosmic accountability in his life. For example, he doesn't fear God. So he doesn't fear that someday he's going to die and then have to give an account for the way he's behaved as a judge to the true and the living God. For him, there is no God. So no fear there. And he doesn't fear man either. He doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. He's not worried about a judicial ethics committee. He's not concerned about re-election or any other such thing. He is completely disconnected from accountability. And as a result, he has no motivation to rule as a judge for the benefit of anyone other than himself. So if you're coming to him against your adversary, here's the deal. You better bring more money than your adversary. That's the point. Justice goes to the highest bidder with this man. Hang on to that. Because Jesus says that in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. But then he introduces us to character number two, and he says, and there was also a widow in that city. And that too is very significant. In Jesus' day, you would have been hard-pressed to find a more vulnerable member of society than a widow, and here's why. When your husband died, ladies, guess how much money you inherited? Nothing. Not a nickel. Not a penny. Your husband died, you were immediately destitute, and guess what else? You were now owned literally by your husband's family who had purchased you from your family and paid a dowry price to compensate your family for the loss of your services, and they had purchased you prior to the wedding for their now deceased son. And so as soon as your husband dies, you get nothing, you have nothing, and you're owned like, you know, the family car, if you will, by your now deceased husband's family. And that's a scary place to be because what can you do with the family car? You can sell it. Now think about that. And that happened in those days. So sometimes widows would be sold back to their mom and dad, but a lot of times mom and dad had taken a European vacation with that dowry money. They didn't have the liquidity necessary to buy you back. So then sometimes widows were sold to perfect strangers. But for purposes of this parable, the reason this matters is here you have a judge and he is the sole source of justice in town for this woman. And as we'll see in a second, she needs justice, not wants it. Being disappointed on a want is bad enough. She needs it. But justice goes to the highest bidder. And what does she have to offer? Not a thing. So when Jesus says that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was also a widow in that city who had absolutely nothing to offer to this judge, and yet who nevertheless kept coming to this unjust judge day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, saying, and you can feel the intensity of this, give me justice against my adversary. What do you want to do for this woman? You kind of want to walk over, put your arm around her, you know, give her a hug and say, hey, love you, but you need to give up now. You, you need to quit. You need to throw in the towel. You need to see this for what it is. This guy is never going to listen to you. And it pains me to see you maintain this ridiculous hope that somehow, someday, some way that he will. You've got to stop getting up every single morning and thinking, I don't know, maybe this will be the day. You know what? The torch needs to go to a candle, needs to go to a smoldering wick, and it needs to go cold. Painful as that is, I think it would be better for you 
Deal with the brutal facts. Give up. The justice that you're looking for is not coming. And yet, unlike me and perhaps unlike you, she doesn't lose heart. The torch just stunningly keeps burning. And so again, Jesus says that she kept coming to this unjust judge again, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And quite predictably, for a while, this unjust judge refused. And every time he refused, did it look more likely that he would give her the justice or less? It's less. And all her friends would come over, you know, and the neighbors and her family would come and they'd give her a hug and they'd say, oh, honey, now will you listen to me? Now will you give up? Now will you quit? Now will you throw in the towel? When are you going to get the point that the deliverance, the justice that you so desperately need is not ever going to come? Or is it? Curious language the Lord uses. Again, he says that for a while, there it is. This unjust judge refused her prayers for relief, but then he says, but afterwards, this unjust judge said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. So he's completely self-aware, which is kind of refreshing. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her the justice that she has been so desperately longing for. See, it's even, it's self-serving. He just wants to get her off his back, but nevertheless... I will give her the justice that she has been so desperately longing for. Here it is, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then the Lord stops the story and points at the widow. And he says to everybody, me, you, them, us. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says to this widow who by all accounts should have given up, should have quit, should have thrown in the towel, had every reason in the world to lose hope. And yet against all odds and every shred of advice she could get from every good counselor she could find would not give up, would not let it go. And then arguing from the far, far lesser to the far, far greater, Jesus says, and will not God who is in no sense like this judge. That's the idea. He is perfectly just. He is utterly unselfish, the very definition of it. And he is wholly accountable to his own perfect character and nature. My goodness, he says, will not God give to who? To his elect, to those for whom he has already sacrificed the infinitely valuable life of his one and only son. Like what else is he now going to withhold from us that is good and is not just as good? Will not God give to his elect justice. You see, we're not like the widow, and God's not like the judge. We're not some powerless, advocateless person who has no claims at all on the Lord, like she was with that judge. And He's not our judge through faith in Jesus. He's our Heavenly Father. It's a very different position And yet, if she can get what she's been longing for from that guy, how much more, do you see the argument, should we be encouraged to persevere? Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect, but to his elect to do what? Because it's kind of the point. 
It's the product of the lesson. It's the fruit of the Spirit's work in our life as He takes this and says, here, now, work on this. Who do what? Who by faith, that's the only way you can do it, cry to Him day and night, the idea being unceasingly, unremittingly, without quitting, without giving up, without throwing in the towel, and without losing heart. Because He's our Father and we're His children. He's not some unjust judge and we're some powerless widow. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he, our heavenly father, delay long over them? The answer is screaming, no, of course he won't do that. And indeed, Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them. And then he uses a curious word. It's the word speedily. Now, let me ask you something as you wait upon the Lord. Do you typically feel like his answers come to you speedily? Because I'm going no on that. I mean, I think that the Lord has a different definition of speedily than I do, at least. I've, uh, I've commented on this in the past, but, you know, he wears a different watch. You know, I mean, I wear like a watch that I bought 10 years ago for 30 bucks or something. And it's this cheap little rubber watch. And here's the difference between my watch and God's watch. And there are many, but a few of them is if this watch lasts me to the rest of my life. And I hope not, you know, like I hope I outlive the battery on this thing or we're in trouble, Okay. But if not, even if I replace the battery, even if I buy another $30, what is this, a Timex, even if I go that route, a day is coming unless the Lord returns first when somebody's going to take this watch off my dead wrist and give it to my son, you know, maybe, and based upon the value, he'll probably play fetch with the dog or something with it, which I'm okay with. I don't care. I'll be in heaven. I could care less. Do whatever you want with the watch. Seriously. God wears a different watch. He wears it on a different wrist. It is a perfect watch. It is an undying wrist. It is one that governs time from eternity past to eternity future. It is worn on the wrist of the one who declares the end before even the beginning begins. And I do have to say that I think we need to measure the way we think about time against that and to realize by faith that speedily is not determined by you, speedily is not determined by me, speedily is not determined by my watch or your watch or the way that we experience things in this life, speedily is determined by the one who transcends time, life, death, and every other circumstance and matter in this world. And his definition of speedily is absolutely flawless in a day is coming, either in this life or in the next upon which we will agree with that. Jesus speaks truly. He says, look, he will bring your deliverance speedily. And then he concludes that parable with this. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes. Now, when is that? At the end of this age. And he talked about that last week. What did he refer to last week? He referred to the days of Noah. He referred to the days of Sodom and Lot and all of that. Now, what kind of days were those, at least for the people of God? They were dark days. They were desperate days. They were days in which God's people, no doubt, cried out for relief. Good grief, we need justice. This place has gone mad. Will God, in that kind of situation... When it looks like he's not listening and deliverance isn't coming. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and that's what it will be like then, will he find faith on the earth? I think the way to apply that to your life now is to say, all right, well, what if he came right now? Look at all the things that you're waiting on God for. 
Where have you lost hope? Where have you lost faith? Where have you in truth given up and now you pay lip service to all that stuff? Oh, yeah, I'll pray about that. Yeah, sure, pray for that, but I don't believe it. He's inspiring us to believe through his inspired word. Will he find people who have persevered in prayer even when it seemed like he wasn't listening and it looked by every reasonable interpretation of our lives and by his design, incidentally, so that we might exercise faith and live by that instead of by what we can see. Okay, like the deliverance that we need, not want, isn't coming. Bottom line, we're to persevere in prayer. And here's why, because we're not like the widow and God isn't like the judge. But here's the thing, we're not like the widow and God isn't like the judge, only if we are like the tax collector in the story that Jesus now tells us, beginning in verse 9, where Luke says that Jesus also, you ready, told this parable, so here we go, and who does he tell it to? Because it defines the purpose. He tells it to those people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and here's what that means. They trusted in their own obedience. They trusted in their own efforts. They trusted in their own steam. They trusted in all of their own diligence. They said to themselves, I am going to separate myself from the rest of humanity by being more ruthlessly obedient to the law of God than everyone else. And so that when God looks down upon humanity, here's what he's going to do. He's going to have to choose. Who do I favor? Who do I bless? Whose prayers do I listen to? Who will I grant my heaven? Well, good grief. I certainly can't miss this guy. Look at how diligent he is about obeying my law. They trusted in themselves, in their own efforts to be righteous, and they trusted that they were in fact righteous. And as a result, they did what everybody who thinks that of themselves does. So here's a symptom to look for. They treated others who, at least in their own opinion, were less righteous with contempt. That's who the story's for. So Jesus then says this. He says, two men went up to the temple to do the very thing that we're talking about this morning, which is to pray. And they went up in all likelihood at nine o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon, because that's when the morning and afternoon sacrifices were conducted. And that's when all the people of God would gather in the temple court. So they gather with everybody else to pray. And one of those two men, Jesus says, was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And one of the problems we have in interpreting this parable is that we assume, because you know we know the rest of the New Testament and we know that Jesus is generally very critical of the Pharisees, Well, we assume that since Jesus is critical of the Pharisees, everyone else was too, and they weren't. That's a mistake. Now, I'm sure those guys had their critics, but by and large, they were widely respected. And why? Why? Specifically because of their personal piety, specifically because everybody looked at their obedience to the law of God and went, good grief, these guys are amazing. Listen, if your daughter brought home the son of a Pharisee, you were jacked, man. You raced around like you killed the fattened calf, if you will. I mean, you you know, that was awesome. What about the son of a tax collector? No, that was a crisis intervention moment right there. We're going to call all the families together and, you know, bring in somebody who's really good at this and intervene with our daughter on this one because this is not going to go anywhere and it's best that she come to learn that right now. Here's the deal. Tax collectors... We're on the opposite end of the spectrum. They were universally regarded as unrighteous. So keep that in mind. Jesus says two men went up to the temple along with everyone else in town. So you see the scene to pray. 
And one of those two men was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And then he says of the Pharisee standing by himself. Now, why does he stand by himself? He stands by himself by choice. He intentionally separates himself out from everyone else who has gathered in the temple courts to pray. And why is that? Because he's so much more righteous than all of them, you see? At least in his heart. And he doesn't want any of them to touch him physically, lest he be defiled with their unrighteousness. What a lovely guy. And so here's the Pharisee, and he's standing by himself. Can you see him? He's standing in the posture of prayer in that day. So here's the posture of prayer in that day. It's hands extended, it's face looking up into the heaven, eyes open as if to look for God himself and as if to catch the answer to your prayer that you feel like because, you know, you're such a good person you deserve. I mean, you know, if God was going to pick and choose amongst all the people in the temple courts who he's going to answer the prayer of, good grief, certainly he would choose me. And here's the irony of this. He's looking toward the heavens. His eyes are open, and yet it is clear that he has never in his head and through his eyes or in his heart had any kind of a vision of God himself. And it's clear because of the way he prays. You see, if he had actually seen the Lord God, he would have prayed very differently. He would have said something like, Oh, Lord, I right now see your holiness. God, I am overwhelmed by your perfections. I am blown away by the infinite magnitude of all of your beauties. And now I realize what true righteousness looks like. And the massive mistake that I have made in thinking that when you look at me and and judge me either to be righteous or not, you're comparing me to everyone else. No, true righteousness looks like you. That's the standard. God compares us not to each other, but to himself. And Lord, as I look at you, and therefore then I see myself quite differently... I have nothing to offer you but my filth. And I have nothing to claim but your mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those eyes are looking up at heaven. He, he clearly has no concept of who God really is. Because instead of praying that way, he prayed this way. And he prayed thus out loud so everybody could hear him Just one more reason to love the guy. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then I guess he started looking around and seeing people in the crowd, you know, and calling folks out. He sees somebody he knows to be an extortioner. He calls out a whole group of them, extortioners. You know, he's looking at this guy. He sees the unjust judge, perhaps. He's wandered in. He's confused, you know. I don't know. He's lost. He's there for a reason. I have no idea why. I do know it would be totally self-centered, so. And he calls out the unjust. He sees somebody he knows was once an adulterer, or maybe still is, and he calls out adulterers. And then he looks over toward the eastern gate of the temple courts. And he sees another man standing all by himself, but for a very different reason, not because he's so righteous, he doesn't want to be touched by anyone, but because he is so unrighteous, he immediately understands that he's not to come any closer than that. The eastern gate of the temple courts was the closest that a tax collector was allowed to come into those courts. And he recognized himself, A, as a tax collector, B, as an unrighteous and unworthy 
man. And so the mere fact that that's where he's standing is a confession of his guilt. He sees the man standing over there, and he points him out specifically. He says, or even like this tax collector, and then he tells us all exactly what it is that he thinks makes him better. He says, for I fast twice a week. Now, which that's extraordinary, by the way. Typically, Jews in his day would have fasted once a year. This guy fasts 104 times a year. That is remarkable. You're like, is that good? Well, I guess it depends. It depends on why you do it. If you're doing it for the reason that this guy was doing it, which is to, you know, sort of separate yourself out literally from the crowd so that when God looks down and says, well, you know, who am I going to favor? Who am I pleased with? Who am I going to bless? Who am I going to answer the prayers of? Who am I going to receive into my heaven? It's a terrible idea. But if God has taken hold of your dead heart and made it alive, if God, by His Word and by His Spirit and in community with His people, is forming and shaping in you, if you have a hunger and a thirst for Jesus Christ and to spend that kind of time chasing hard after Him, and He inspires that, not as a matter of proving yourself to anyone or proving anything to anybody, to God, to you, to anyone else, not for any reason other than that, then it is a marvelously good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But there's a big difference, and he's just doing it to separate himself from the crowd. Oh, God, I fast twice a week, you know? And everybody's like, whoa, twice a week, you know? Guy's amazing. They'd give him a fist bump, but he won't do it because they're unrighteous. (laughs) He goes on, he says, I give tithes of all that I get, meaning of all of the income that he earns and of all that he buys with his already tithed upon income. Think about that. That's a whole different level. It's like, wait, I've tithed on all my income, but now I just bought this loaf of bread. I got to give 10% of that. Yep, according to his standard. Well, he's head and shoulders above the crowd. Is he not or is he? Not so fast. Jesus says, verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off in recognition of his own sin and unrighteousness, confessing it by where he's standing and by his posture too, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, much less put out his hands, but instead he used his hands to beat his breast. And in a demonstration of sincere humility and brokenness and repentance for his sin, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because again, irony of all ironies, this guy who's not looking up to heaven clearly has seen the Lord. With the eyes of his heart, he has beheld him as he is. And he has seen himself in light of God's holiness and perfections and beauties. And he has realized that he's completely undone and ruined, as Isaiah says, when he comes into the presence of the Lord. And he knows that his condition is one that cannot be remedied by himself. And he has no hope at all except in the mercy of God. And he asks for that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I tell you, says Jesus, this tax collector went down to his house justified. That is to say, he went down to his house having first been declared righteous by the mercy of God rather than the Pharisee. He went home in his sin and in eternal peril. He has his eyes on the wrong standard, on the wrong beings, And then Jesus says this, and it's beautiful. He reverses the language. It's chiastic. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself, do you see that? Will be what? Exalted by God. 
What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you know what? Spiritually speaking, things are not always the way that they appear. And if you think you can just stroll into the presence of God because as you compare yourself with everybody else, hey, I mean, really, you know, why would the Lord not bless you? I mean, if he's looking to answer the prayers of somebody, I'm thinking, I feel pretty good about my chances here. I mean, if somebody's going to heaven, and surely somebody is, it's got to be me. I mean, who better to have in his family than than me? Look at the way that I live. Look at everyone else. If that's what you think, Jesus is saying, wow, it's a surprise ending for you, and you're not going to like it. Because righteousness is defined by God's own holiness, perfections, and beauty. And by that standard, even this, I, you know, fast 104 times a year and tithe on my loaf of bread guy, Pharisee, doesn't make it in. But if you come to God like this tax collector, completely abandoning the record of your life and openly confessing that you have failed massively to meet his standard, and claiming, however, his mercies, which are infinite, In Christ Jesus, the God who did not leave you in your sin and without remedy, but instead who clothed himself in the same humanity that you wear and lived the only good as God life ever and who then laid down his good as God life as a perfect, infinitely valuable sacrifice for he is the God man to cover over all of your sin. If you claim his life, his death, his burial, and his defeat of death and resurrection as your only hope of heaven, not only will you be forgiven and made clean, declared righteous by God, but you'll no longer be a widow and he a judge. You'll be a son. You'll be a daughter. And he will be your perfectly just, utterly unselfish, and wholly accountable to his own perfect nature, and character, Heavenly Father. So the questions these stories are begging to ask are just simple ones, aren't they? Like, are you the Pharisee or are you the tax collector? What are you trusting in for your standing before God? Because if you're comparing yourself to everyone else and declaring yourself, therefore, to be righteous, you've got your eyes on the wrong stuff. You need to look up at the Lord, not at other people, and declare yourself unrighteous. And like the tax collector, beg the mercies that he has given to you in Christ and receive that forgiveness. And if and when you do that, again, you're a son or daughter of the king. You have every claim on God that there possibly could be. He can no more refuse you than he can refuse Jesus Christ himself, whose righteousness you are clothed in. My goodness, you have every reason to persevere in prayer, and to trust his definition of speedily. And so the last question then is, what are you waiting for from the Lord? Because whatever it is, if you're a son or daughter of the king, hey, hey, here's the deal. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Do not lose heart. Let the torch burn brighter each day with hope, not diminishing as you come in relationship to understand who this God is better and better and better. Everything increases. Hope, joy, satisfaction, the whole deal. Don't lose heart. Even when everything you can see in this life by God's design 
so that you might learn to live by faith makes it look like he's not listening and that your justice and deliverance isn't coming. It will come, Jesus says, and speedily, though by the Lord's watch. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for stories like this. Lord, stories that are 2,000 years old but transcend time and space, culture and circumstances. Lord, life upon life, speak into every one of our lives. Lord, we thank you for the Savior who came, for the one who indeed lived, for the one who met the good as God life standard, and who then in love, graciously, in mercy, for no reasons deserving in us, gave up that life that we might through faith in Him be washed of our sin with the infinitely precious blood that He shed. Lord, let hope burn within us again if it has you know, if we're a smoldering wick, if you will, or if, if hope has died within us, rekindle it. Give us grace, O God, we pray, and faith to believe when we cannot see it. Lord, let us, for your glory, cling to you more and more tightly. Each day we wait and not last. Do these things, we pray, for your glory and the good of this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.